So hello and welcome everyone. I'm Sorsha O'Callaghan. I'm the director of the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. Um, welcome to our event on Sudan and the current conflict. A quick note as we're getting started, if you'd like to access the Arabic translation, do please click on the globe at the bottom of the screen. And you can also access closed captions there as well. I'm going to set the scene a little bit before we hand over to our excellent panelists today. Um, and three months have now passed since Sudan descended into brutal conflict after fighting broke out between the Rapid Support Forces, the, the, the RSF, and the Sudanese Forces, the staff, due to concerns about a planned merger as part of Sudan's, unfortunately, um, on hold transition to civilian rule. And since then, as we know, violence has escalated and it's spread across the country. And the humanitarian consequences have been horrific. Khartoum has been particularly badly affected, with entire communities transformed into battlegrounds. And the fight ripped open the ethnic tensions that have been present in Darfur over, over many years. Um, and there's been deliberate targeting of, of civilians, credible reports of, of sexual violence. And this has prompted the, the ICC to, to begin uh, an open investigation. In all, over 3 million people are now estimated displaced, over 700,000 of whom have crossed borders into neighboring countries and beyond. Thousands of people have been killed and millions, some 2 million or more, are thought to be food insecure, some of them severely food insecure. We know that against impossible odds and putting their lives on the line, Sudanese organizations have really been the lifeblood of this response in a very complex, insecure um, and difficult uh, operating environment. Um, and that despite the severity of Sudan's crisis, the international community has, has, has struggled to scale up. Um, the UN Emergency Relief Coordinator said this week that Sudan is the toughest place in the world for humanitarian workers in terms of access. And there have also been questions about the level of financial support to Sudan and the neighboring countries that are really supporting uh, this crisis. And certainly from my perspective, the limited international attention to such a severe and escalating crisis is, is striking. So we have an excellent panel with us today to discuss these issues and more. Firstly, I'm delighted to welcome Clementine Nkweta Salami, who is the recently appointed UN Deputy Special Representative, Resident and Humanitarian Coordinator for Sudan. Welcome, Clementine. I have also the pleasure of introducing Nuha Murgani, who's a medical doctor. She's also the co-chair of Sudan NextGen organization, which is an organization that brings together experts and organizations and communities looking to transform Sudan. And Nuha is also the president of the Sudanese American Medical Association, SAMA, that provides medical support and humanitarian assistance in Sudan. I'm also delighted that Leticia Bader, who's the Horn of Africa director at Human Rights Watch, uh, is with us today. Uh, Human Rights Watch have been doing a lot of work on the human rights situation in Sudan, including in Khartoum and Darfur. And finally, um, Hajir Malim, who is the regional director for East Africa and Yemen 
with the Norwegian, or the Norwegian Refugee Council, who've been present and active in Sudan over many years, um, is also with us today. So a very warm welcome to you all. Today's event is part of a series of, of events um, and, um, uh, and work that uh, HPG and ODI has been doing in relation to Sudan. You can find some of our briefing notes or podcasts and more in the chat now. Um, we'd love to hear also from, from you. Um, um, so do please put your comments in the chat. Um, but we'd also love to have your, your questions to the panel. Um, so use the, the question and answer box in particular if you'd like to present a question and I'll put them to, to the panel um, um, a little later on. So maybe first of all to, to start with you, Leticia. Um, um, Human Rights Watch, as I've been saying, have been doing a lot of work on the human rights situation and the, the real atrocities that civilians in Sudan are facing. Um, can you paint a picture of this for us, what you're seeing on the ground, but also what you're hearing in terms of testimonies that you're, you're receiving, um, and also what you're pushing for in terms of international engagement? Over, over to you, Leticia. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for having invited us to join today. I mean, as many Sudanese voices from all walks of life have described, the last three months has been a story of massive loss, lives turned upside down, impossible decisions around remaining in Khartoum and risking falling victim to shelling, bombs, pillage, or even more likely gunshot wounds or fleeing and facing violence along the way and suffering in places of displacement. Three months in, there seems to be no end in sight to the human suffering, but also increasing evidence of serious violations against civilians. In the first weeks of the conflict, we reported on the devastating impact of the use of heavy explosive weaponry in densely populated parts of Khartoum and its sister cities. We documented how the rapid support forces entrenched themselves and fought from populated areas, placing civilians at danger, while SAF bombed residential areas and struck also key civilian infrastructure. This was something we warned very early on, was massive damage to civilian infrastructure, including healthcare facilities. And I think everyone in the room today knows that that impact will continue to have a devastating impact on civilians, even if the conflict were to stop tomorrow. In South Sudan, we traveled there to meet with mainly people who were fleeing Khartoum, where people spoke of massive loss of life from gunfire in their neighborhoods, bombings of property and shelling. Most of the people I interviewed there knew at least of some people who had been killed and also highlighted how most people were not being taken into hospital, which shows once again how the official civilian fatality number is most likely a massive underestimation of the true cost. As the last two weeks have shown, neither warring party has shown any willingness to move away from fighting in densely populated areas. Many of the civilians who are left behind are those who can't afford to flee, and this is really something that came out very clearly in our interviews in South Sudan is how much it costs to flee right now 
and including you add to that the massive looting that people have been facing in Khartoum and along the way during their flight. Other people who stay behind, it's because they cannot physically move, including older people. And there are some people, obviously, who just don't want to go. And I think it's critical for the humanitarian response to take into consideration the very specific realities and needs of those who are still living in Khartoum. We're also receiving increasing reports from service providers of sexual violence, as the UN has reported, including as people flee. Given the destruction of the healthcare facilities, survivors are also facing the additional burden and problem of not having access to the sort of um, support that they need in the aftermath of these abuses. In Darfur region, the fighting between SAF and RSF, which obviously is happening in specific localities, has also had a massive impact on the civilian population within the context of an already dire humanitarian situation. Now, I want now to turn to West Darfur. We have, in fact, as an organization, been investigating events in West Darfur since 2020 and looked again and again at repeated attacks in towns in the state, including in El Janina and Kregnik. Some of the patterns of attacks we are now seeing on a much larger scale have been taking place there since 2019. We saw again and again how the attackers targeted internally displaced camps in urban areas. It's very clear from our research that there was a direct correlation between the withdrawal of UNAMID forces, which started back in 2019, and an uptake in attacks. Our interviews with both Arab and Masalit communities there also pointed to the Juba peace agreement as having heightened tensions amongst the communities, with both feeling that their grievances were not being addressed. So as we all know, we were already speaking of a human rights and humanitarian crisis in West Darfur pre-April 2023. Communities there have been regularly ringing the alarm bell, but the international community, including the UN system, failed to respond to those calls. So our research found that West Darfur, since fighting broke out there on April 24th, has really seen some of the worst attacks on civilians in the conflict. Many could have been foreseen and predicted. Last week, we reported on events in one town, the town of Mestere. This is a medium-sized town of around 46,000 people, where preceding the attack, there had been fighting between rapid support forces alongside Arab militia with local self-defense forces of the Masalit. On the day of the attack, there were, again, some fighting between the two, but the Masalit were very quickly overfought. Over so what we saw was how the rapid support forces, and we spoke of thousands of forces, descended on the town, encircled the town, indiscriminately shot in the street, running after, following, pursuing Masalit men in particular. We documented the summary execution of 26 men unarmed, hiding in schools alongside women and girls. Throughout the day, we also um, documented massive pillaging of the town, livestock, etc., and then the burning down of the town. 
This forced the community to flee. It's Mistere is very close to the border. And unlike um, communities from El Janina at the time, we did our research in the early um, weeks of June, that the community was able to flee in, into Eastern Chad, which is where we conducted our research. So for now, our in-depth research does not confirm similar attacks in other towns in West Darfur, but we do not preclude that these events form part of much broader trends of abuse. We know that at least six other towns were burnt down in this same period. Yale University speaks of many more. Also, we documented during the attack how the assailants threatened civilians, said, why are you still here, used ethnic slurs, targeted for killings, Masalit men, and then burnt the town down, which obviously has a widespread impact on the whole population. It's very clear to us that the global response is failing to mirror the gravity of what is unfolding before our eyes. As the Sudanese social movement has been saying time and again, impunity is at the heart of the cycles of violence in Sudan. And yet repeatedly, the question of justice and accountability has been seen as too complicated and has not been central to the response. So we strongly believe, and, and we were very happy to see that IGAD committed last week in a statement that they would be working with an international accountability mechanism. We would now like that to see concrete action at the level of the Human Rights Council in Geneva to establish the sort of mechanism which can investigate, but also preserve evidence. It's also critical that a broad spect spectrum of civilian voices, including from Darfur, are central to all the discussions which are happening. I just want to make a few final comments and um, around the response. I think it is critical for the humanitarian access question to be treated as it is a responsibility, an obligation under international law. It's not a bargaining chip. It's not a question of political leverage or confidence building. It's also critical not to tackle humanitarian access from a purely technical point of view. I think the international community needs to learn from the mistakes of Ethiopia. The humanitarian community, both the UN, INGOs and their backers, cannot waste endless hours and energy that is limited on small technical issues, counting trucks, or maybe in this case, counting pending visas. Such a focus plays into the hands of the governments or warring parties bent on limiting your access and limiting eyes and ears on the ground, able to account for the abuses they are responsible for. Monitoring of assistance cannot be an afterthought. It has to be central to access discussions. And I think in a context where we have seen instrumentalization of assistance, it is even more critical to be ensuring that the assistance is reaching the right people and is not further contributing to the abuses. And maybe just to conclude again from the lessons on Ethiopia, decisions made in day one of the response will have a, an impact on the whole response. Thank you. Thanks, Leticia. That's a very powerful um, overview of, of what's occurring, particularly in, in West Darfur, but also, I guess, the learning from Ethiopia, really important. But these are also lessons that we know from Darfur and from Sudan uh, previously as well about the instrumental, 
in political instrumentalization of access um, and also the concern about humanitarian aid being part of the war effort. Um, so certainly it's something to pick up, I think, in the in the in the Q&A and the discussions. Um, I'd like to turn to you now, Nuha. Um, you're working as part of the uh, Sudanese American Medical Association, really at the front line of, of many of these issues. Um, and as Leticia mentioned, uh, medical facilities and, and, and healthcare has been you know, critically disrupted uh, during this conflict. Um, I'm wondering if you could describe uh, what you've been able to achieve as a SAMA um, in terms of, of providing assistance to communities that have, who have fled Khartoum, some of the challenges that you're, you're facing and also what you would uh, prioritise in terms of international engagement. Over, over Absolutely. Thank you so much, um, Sorja. Just looking back at um, what has been going on in Sudan in the past three months, the least we can say is that everything has been absolutely devastating, um, knowing that more than half of the Sudanese population is in urgent need of um, humanitarian care and protection, that thousands of people have lost their lives in the past three months, that dead bodies continue to be seen laying down in streets across the country, um, as the relatives cannot take them to, um, you know, bury them in the graveyards due to fear of losing their own lives. Um, and the numbers of the dead continue to rise every single day with the ongoing conflict. It's an, a, just a heartbreaking situation for sure. Um, we continue to receive text messages, emails, phone calls 24-7 from people on the ground begging us to, you know, provide medications for dying cancer children, um, food for families who had nothing to eat for a few days, um, advice and medications for 12 and 13 year old rape survivors. Um, and you know, the list just keeps going on and on. And no matter what we do, unfortunately, we're unable to cover all the needs. Um, it's definitely a very difficult situation to be in. I pray that no one ever goes through this and we pray that it ends very soon. Um, when it comes to our work in uh, Sudanese American Medical Association, I just wanted to take a minute to um, send my condolences to my team in SAMA for the loss of Dr. Bushrab Nerov, who was one of the co-founders of the Sudanese Medical Association and who was our um, Sudan office director. Dr. Abouf was killed um, in his own house on April 25th, 10 days after um, the war has erupted. Um, he was one of the most hardworking, generous, loving and kind um, colleagues and doctors I've ever met in my entire life. Um, you know, the team has never been the same after his death and Sudan won't be the same with all the help that he used to provide to, you know, people we know and others we don't even know about. Um, we, we pray that he rests in peace and that he reunites with his loved ones in paradise. Um, to answer your question on the work that's being done on the ground, Sorcha, um, we started off um, by supporting um, hospitals in Khartoum, where we have our main office. Um, we started off by um, partnering with the Sudanese Association of Pediatricians in helping um, 586 uh, children in a hospital over there in Khartoum for seven weeks. Um, we also took care of 550 ladies in an OBGYN hospital for one week. However, everything had to be shut down um, immediately in Khartoum, including our own offices due to the extremely dangerous situation um, in Khartoum. Our team then relocated to the Red Sea um, state, to Port Sudan, where we established the head office over there. Um, we also started working with the uh, Sudanese Association of Vascular Surgeons 
um, in rehabilitating one of the hospitals by fixing the CT scan machine. Um, we also um, launched the Bushra Nauf Learning Center um, just to continue his legacy of you know, spreading um, education and supporting in healthcare. Um, we also launched two telementoring um, healthcare program uh, in trauma, uh, so in surgical trauma and in dental as well in collaboration with the ECHO Institute in um, University of New Mexico. Um, so that's Port Sudan. Um, and then we, our work continues in three additional states, um, the White Nile State, um, Jazeera State, and the Northern State, where um, we continue to support um, internally displaced individuals um, in terms of providing food, shelter, and medication as well. Um, many challenges are faced every single day, but some of the, the main challenges that come to mind include um, the nature of the fighting and how dangerous it is on the streets, um, is not allowing us to um, uh, release um, medical supplies from containers and to distribute it to healthcare facilities and wherever the supplies are needed. Um, another issue that we've been facing is that the, the need is way beyond the capacity that we have. We do have many donation campaigns ongoing. We reach out to thousands of our doctors and donors and um, you know anyone who can support, but at the end of the day, we're still not covering, not even you know, 10% of the need on a daily basis. Um, other issues include um, communication with our local teams. Um, as you can imagine, electricity has been shut off for weeks in some areas and the internet supply is really terrible. So, you know, just even following up with the teams and discussing things with them and checking on our local teams has been very difficult as well. Um, money transfer has been a big issue um, also um, we, as the banks are shut down. So, you know, even when we receive the donations, having it, you know, making sure that it's sent to the ground could take days and sometimes weeks. So those are some of the issues um, we face with SAMA. Of course, in addition to SAMA, I'm also, um, you know, honored to be part of the Sudan Next Gen um, team um, in which we've been partnering with a beautiful team on the ground known as the Pula Naqiyam, um, which translates to we're all values. We've been working with them for about two years. Um, so we're working with them in two uh, different states on the ground. One of them is Jazeera State. Which, is, which was the number one um, destiny or target for internally displaced individuals, especially from Khartoum because of the proximity to Jazeera. Um, we have three ongoing initiatives. The first one is covering the cost of meals for 5,000 internally displaced individuals. The second one is providing food baskets to 1,000 food families. And the third one is supporting 100 cancer patients by providing um, shelter, food, and medications. The second state in which we're working with Sudan Next Gen, again, with the We're All Values Kulanakiyam team is the um, Red Sea State. Um, we're, we have two different initiatives in Port Sudan. Um, the first initiative is um, providing more than 1,300 um, nutritious meals for internally displaced children in locations that are safe and protected where only children and um, healthcare providers um, can access it. And we've been partnering with the UNICEF, uh, the Red Cross and the, the World Food Program in addition to um, additional par uh, local partners. This has started last week. Um, the second initiative that we've had in Port Sudan um, is sending relief uh, convoy um, to help in three smaller camps with 40 to 60 uh, individuals in it, again, by providing food medications and shelter. Some of the um, challenges that we face include the fact that the living conditions in these camps, um, you know, is not ideal. Uh, there's no privacy. Um, the restrooms are very limited. Unfortunately, there has been cases of um, sexual abuse and 
Um, again, unfortunately, there has been one case of suicide. Um, we've seen reports of malnutrition um, and outbreaks, including cholera and malaria. Um, again, the money transfer continues to be a big problem for us. Um, and then with the limited donations, you know, as time goes, um, we've actually had uh, the teams reach out to us from the ground several times, um, telling us that, you know, if we don't receive anything within the next 24 hours, we are shutting down those camps. So it has been, you know, it's nerve wracking to say the least, but we continue to push and, you know, we'll be here to support until the last minute. Um, finally, just when it comes to how the international community can help. I think the thing that stands out the most, and I'm sure Leticia mentioned that as well, is acknowledging the humanitarian crisis in Sudan. Um, unfortunately, we haven't seen the same attention given to Sudan and the Sudanese people that we've seen being given to other countries and to other citizens. Um, you know, we would definitely love for the international NGOs to, you know, give this attention and to see more engagement and support from them. Um, we do need global pressure to stop the war as soon as possible. Uh, the situation is extremely dangerous on the ground and the danger will extend to neighboring countries as well. So we hope that this ends as soon as possible. Urgent humanitarian aid is needed. Um, prayers and donations are always appreciated. I hope we can share the um, donation campaign links in the chat if possible, or everyone is always welcome to visit our websites if they'd like to support in any way. Um, finally, um, if there is any way we can, teams can help with money transfers, and we would like to encourage countries to please, um, you know, welcome and support refugees. Just remembering that those are people whose lives have changed completely out of nowhere. They lost their loved ones, lost their belongings, their jobs and everything. So it would be really nice to support them in any way possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Muhan. You really present I guess the challenges of responding to such a rapidly escalating crisis, but also doing that when one's own security is on the line, like your, your dear colleague that you, you've lost, um, and managing um, you know, the, the very human cost of, of figuring out family and safety amidst this response. So thank you, thank you for that, Dr. Muha. Um, I want to turn to you now, uh, Clementine. You've taken up your position four weeks ago um, at a time when international engagement in Sudan is facing major questions and challenges. Um, can you describe some of the priorities uh, for you currently? And I know that you have been able to, to move some things forward. Um, so perhaps you can talk a little bit about that, but also uh, your priorities uh, for international engagement. Over to you, Clementine. Thank you very much, Sorsha, and greetings to everyone from uh, Port Sudan. First, let me start by underlining that despite the huge challenges the humanitarian response faces in Sudan, the very difficult operating environment, which I'll describe shortly, uh, we are witnessing heroic efforts by humanitarian agencies, including civil society agencies, uh, as well as NGOs to deliver. Uh, there are many stories of humanitarian efforts and achievements in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Now, since the onset of the conflict, um, UN agencies, frontline responders, civil society groups, volunteers, and humanitarian organizations have continued to bravely provide life-saving assistance where and when possible. Uh, 93 humanitarian organizations are providing assistance to over 
million people across the country. And this includes life-saving assistance such as food, nutrition, health, water, as well as protection services. We've been able to reach 1.3 million people um, with the services that I've provided since the fighting began. We've also been able to shift over 30,500 tons of various relief items, mostly food, but also wash, shelter, health, um, nutrition, uh, GBV, supply, GBV supplies. Um, we've moved them across the country. And this uh, amount, I should say, is 50% of what we had prepared for the various destinations. At the onset of the conflict, the movements were not possible. After extensive negotiations, we hope to be able to move additional items as well as health supplies and seeds and food into East and South Darfur. I should say we are not present in Darfur. Uh, the UN is not present in Darfur. Um, we are working through local networks that we established before the conflict, uh, as well as new organizations that have come to the fore that we're able to support. We've strongly advocated for a cross-border operation from, um, from Chad. Um, it's taken some time for us to get the clearances we need, but we've now received agreements and we hope as early as next week, um, agencies will be able to, uh, I would say, begin a cross-border operation from Chad. There'll be some gearing up uh, required, but uh, we, are eight, we are committed to start as quickly as possible. Um, I should also say that as we deliver humanitarian assistance, we've also been able to distribute seed, seeds to small-scale farmers. Uh, the importance of this being that the rainy season is about to begin, and um, we need to uh, make sure that uh, even at a small scale, farmers can plant, and this will prevent further food insecurity um, in the coming year. Let me move quickly to challenges. Um, three months into this terrible crisis, the humanitarian response remains impacted by very important factors that limit our ability to scale up in various parts of the country. Um, bureaucratic and administrative impediments. Um, and let me say these are legacy issues. These are not new in Sudan. Um, humanitarian development actors who have been in the country for decades now have all had to confront some of these uh, challenges. It is compounded by the conflict and the fact that over this time we've not been able to really make any significant movements. And here we are in the midst of a crisis trying to see how we can chip away at the edifice and how we can try and see to move things forward. Now, one of the main factors limiting access around the country is the ongoing violence. There's active fighting in many uh, areas, mainly, of course, in Khartoum, Darfur, and the Kordofan regions. Um, the fighting has pushed, as we all know, millions uh, into a state of desperation. And at the same time, the insecurity prevents humanitarian actors from reaching out uh, to those areas with humanitarian assistance. I mentioned bureaucratic impediments. Let me come back to that. Um, there are delays in visas, uh, delays in travel permits. We are confronting lengthy customs clearances. Um, and we've asked the uh, authorities, and this was the request made by the emergency relief coordinator, to issue a moratorium on these administrative processes to enable the movement of people and supplies at the speed and at the scale required to address the needs. As you all are aware, the declaration of commitments that was signed by the parties to protect civilians and guarantee safe passage of humanitarian 
aid in the country has not been respected. Now, this was signed in May, um, and at the same time, it underlined the importance of all parties to uh, abide by international humanitarian law, human rights law, as well as international refugee law, uh, to facilitate humanitarian action to meet emergency needs of civilians and, and, and to respect humanitarian workers and assets. The parties um, have not adhered to uh, these international obligations, and we continue to push and to urge them to do so in a way that would allow us to uh, undertake our work unhampered, but more importantly, uh, protect civilians um, from some of the attacks uh, that they're confronting, as well as the attacks on um, civil uh, uh, infrastructure. I should also talk about the looting. Um, tragically, we've lost 18 aid workers since the beginning of this conflict, and many have been injured. Our warehouses, 47, have been looted. Our offices, 81, have been looted. And we've lost count of the vehicles that we had uh, and that would have been used for this humanitarian response. Um, they've all been looted and we can't account for many of the vehicles we left in various parts of the country. Um, just to give you an example, the looting of the warehouse in Alobaid um, contained food that would have fed 4.4 million people. We lost our entire, entire stock. Uh, all of this is hampering this capacity we have to scale up and to deliver. Some of the logistical challenges have already been mentioned. Uh, telecommunications, intermittent services in part of the country, making it hard to monitor, as well as to remain engaged with some of our partners in some of these very difficult locations. We're also struggling um, with capacity, the capacity of our partners, implementing partners um, to uh, uh, scale up. Uh, many partners had to relocate due to operations, uh, due to insecurity, I should say, of their operations. Uh, many national and international staff have been displaced. Some are in the country. We're trying to identify them and repurpose them uh, and use them. Um, but many of our national staff have left the country. They are in neighboring countries, and therefore we have serious challenges in relation to capacity. In terms of logistics, uh, as I mentioned, our uh, our uh, transportation, our assets, our cars have been looted. We're now reliant on commercial transporters. We have to negotiate every day. Um, uh, they want to increase their, their, their costs. Uh, many of them are afraid to travel some of these roads because the roads are under the control of many actors. And for many of them, they consider it too dangerous. So that is an ongoing effort. We also have banks that are closed in most of the country making cash. Uh, available to pay our staff a key challenge. I think uh, uh, this was mentioned earlier by uh, one of the panelists. So these are some of the obstacles uh, that we are facing. We are also about to move into the rainy season. And we are very, very concerned about our ability to uh, deploy our vehicles, our trucks with humanitarian assistance to parts of the country that we know will very soon uh, be underwater. The roads will become impassable. Um, usually at this time of the year, humanitarian actors uh, pre-position their supplies and are able to draw from these stocks during the course of the rainy season.
but we are very concerned that um, we will not have access to parts of Darfur, uh, parts of Gadaref, the White Nile, and parts of Kassalab as a result of the, fund, of, of the flooding. Um, I should also say, just before I go, that um, the overall humanitarian response has been very, very weak in terms of funding. Our donors have been generous, but they have to dig deeper. The humanitarian response plan um, requires 2.6 billion uh, to provide, and let me underline, life-saving multi-sectoral assistance, protection services to 18.1 million people. We speak, as I speak, it is 23% funded. As I said, donors have responded, but they need to dig deeper. I'll stop there, Sosha. Back to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Clementine. Um, I think we'll pick up many of these, these issues, and particularly this issue about international engagement and, and funding. Um, but I want to turn now to you, Hajir. Uh, you're the regional director for, for NRC, and NRC is an INGO that's been present in Sudan for, for very many years, um, both responding across the country, um, but also being an active advocate on, on, on the crisis and on the conflict. Um, can you tell me what some of your key operational uh, priorities are currently, um, Hajir, um, and in particular, some of your advocacy priorities? Thanks, Ashley, I think, and, and thanks to, to the other panelists. I think they have raised quite a number of key issues. But let me start with a tribute to the thousands of, I mean, hundreds of thousands of frontline aid workers on the ground who are continuing to put their lives at risk uh, to respond in very difficult uh, circumstances. I also want to join Dr. Nuha in mourning Dr. Bushra and at least uh, 17 other aid workers killed on the line of duty in the past three months. I also stand in solidarity with the millions of people affected by this crisis. We quite know clearly how when people get uprooted uh, from their villages and from their communities, uh, what happens uh, to them. I think we have, we have seen the protracted natures of displacement in, in this region and the lack of services being provided in many of these displacement camps. I also want to recognize from the start the complexity of this crisis. And I think, uh, the, the, the panelists before me have clearly pictured that as well, quite very clearly. Uh, and it's, it is difficult uh, for, for all of us to, to operate in this context. Uh, Khartoum, uh, the major city in the country becoming inaccessible, completely uh, disrupted, has a massive implication on the rest of the country and even areas that are relatively stable were massively impacted uh, because of what happened in Khartoum and also in other areas as well. I know there has been a number of issues that have been already been raised in terms of access, our inability to access population, uh, inability of the people even to move to seek humanitarian assistance where they can be safely delivered, the violence against aid workers, the looting of vehicles, NGO compounds, I mean humanitarian agencies compounds, uh, and, and warehousing, the bureaucratic impediment, as well as the disruption in the humanitarian supplies. But I just want to shift. I think that these issues have been clearly articulated by the past speaker. So I just want to shift a little bit more on the operational side in terms of programming. What can we do? Number one is that we need to protect what we have. Every time communities are uprooted or 
looting happens, it destroys even the limited resources that are very scarce already and uh, essential for saving lives. So we need to be ensuring that communities, humanitarian agencies, actors on the ground, community volunteers, all those resources that we have needs to be protected. And I think we need to hold the parties to the conflict to account to ensure that both civilian assets and uh, humanitarian infrastructures are protected. But also this is also in terms of making sure that the communities that are currently not directly impacted by the conflict in terms of, for example, them being able to plant, ensuring that we provide them with that means to be able to do so. But primarily, and I think this is the, the key thing is that we need to stop this conflict. There should be pressure put in terms of ending uh, this conflict. Because we know that if we don't do this, we already seen fragmentation of this conflict further, and we're seeing more mushrooming of localized conflict that's continuing to also drive more displacements and the numbers have been clearly good and the numbers are quite uh, astronomical to have more than 3 million people displaced within three months. And that's not the end of it. And we are going to see these numbers will become absolute, but probably by the end of this uh, event, as more people get displaced. It is tearing apart this, the, 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 Sudanese, uh, the, the fabric of the Sudanese society and even has a ma major implication in the wider region as well. So we shouldn't accept uh, the current conflict as this, and there should be pressure being put on all parties to make sure that we resolve these issues fast and decisively. In the absence of that, I think we also need to make sure that commitment to international humanitarian laws are upheld uh, by, by all the parties to, to the conflict. But coming to us as humanitarian agencies on the ground, we have responsibilities to scale up the response, both to save lives and livelihoods. And this response needs to be of high quality, principled assistance, where we also, as Letitia clearly put it as well, inculcate the element of monitoring from the stars to ensure that the assistance reach those most in need in a dignified, but also sufficiently, both in quality and quantity. This requires, uh, clearly, as Clementine has also mentioned, clearly further investments by donors, and we appeal uh, to, to our generous donors to continue to fund uh, this, this response. It is clearly evident, I mean, as Leticia and others have also spoken about in terms of the, the clear need and protection. It is vital that we continue to scale up both the monitoring, but also the support and the advocacy to protect all those who need, and including those who are potentially going to be at risk. The levels of violations uh, that we're hearing in, in, in Sudan is unacceptable. And I think we need to be able to ensure, particularly as we are seeing more women and, and children getting displaced, even seeking refuge in other neighboring countries, the majority of the refugees we are seeing in Chad, in South Sudan, and many others, and the returnees, uh, the vulnerable women and children, needs to be protected uh, as well. I'm glad to hear from Clementine as well about the efforts being made about the cross-border operations from Chad. And this is very much welcome. It is critical that we prioritize cross-border operations and ensure the safe passage of humanitarian workers and supplies from neighboring countries to boost the response inside of Sudan. We know Sudan is a very vast country. I mean, the distance from Port Sudan uh, to Darfur is more than 2,000 kilometers. It is in essential that these border entry points are, are opened up as aid delivery venues, uh, avenues for, for delivering more aid in these areas. It's also critical 
that we lift, and we, we advocate for the lifting of ban of imports of aid supplies from Ethiopia into Sudan. But let me end by uh, talking a little bit about how we can reinforce further the coordination. It is critical that the humanitarian operations inside Sudan is aligned to the breadth and the scale of the crisis uh, that we face. And I'm hearing that we need to be able to scale up. We need to be able to, to boost as well our ability to be able to coordinate. And I know that we have it right now, centralized leadership in Port Sudan, and it's great news that we are having the leadership and Clementine coming on board, I tell is an excellent news for, 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 for the Sudan response. We need to be able to scale that up to ensure that we have appropriate uh, representation, but then coordination structures to lead the response in other locations as well. We shouldn't undermine the complexity of the response uh, that, uh, that we need to undertake in, in, in Sudan, and therefore having the appropriate structures in place to respond to these fast and in the right way, particularly to reach, uh, to, to, to reach those in hard to reach areas, but also more importantly as well, dealing with those indirectly impacted by, by this conflict. And maybe just to elaborate this point a little bit, we're seeing more returnees uh, from Sudan. I mean, South Sudanese returnees going into South Sudan in a context where the situation in South Sudan is already very dire. This is likely going to further uh, uh, disrupt, but also create further uh, instability, but also further deterioration of the situation inside uh, South Sudan. So we need to be able to have that ability to be able to see the response in Sudan in a much larger scale to also anticipate potential uh, further deterioration that might become disastrous uh, down the line. And I just want to end by saying that we need to have, Clementine as uh, the, the, the HC in country and other leaders within the humanitarian community to continue to be a strong advocate for the emergency response inside Sudan, by also maintaining relationship with the authorities to advocate for an needed principle humanitarian response, addressing all the access constraints that have been mentioned, but also providing the leadership where we need to mobilize the appropriate resources for this response. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hadir. A huge amount there and prompting, like everyone else, loads of questions um, in the, the question and answer box. I'm going to, to touch on a few of them. Um, there's been a lot of questions around the interplay between access meeting the war economy um, and humanitarian response and how to, I guess, this issue that Leticia mentioned in her opening remarks, how to make sure that, that there is a, an understanding that, um, that, that access and humanitarian response is part of the political and military uh, effort. Um, and um, how to make sure that we're not moving forward just on a technical basis around counting trucks and counting how many aid workers have been provided visas and, and, and coming up with a strategy um, of, of, of managing these difficult negotiations, but understanding that this is um, part of a whole kind of political and military process. Um, so how do we move forward on access? How do we move forward on um managing the the looting that is occurring in a very complex environment and not playing into um i guess these um short-term negotiations that are happening um around uh around the peace processes and, and ceasefires um so i think that's a question 
in particular maybe for for Leticia, for Clementine, and for for Hajir as well in terms of 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 um, the negotiations around around access. Um, so that's that's maybe the the first the first question. Um, there's another question around. Um, I guess the the regional implications of this and Hajir, I think you can maybe talk in particular around this. Um, we know that um, there are, you know, some of the borders are being being closed, um, and there's there's threatening there's threatening around that. But we also know how challenging it is to to respond within the country, um, and that cross border uh, responses are going to be more more and more important. How do we um, work with neighboring countries to make sure that they do keep open their borders and what are um, what further support can the international community provide um, so that they're they're not they're not doing this alone um, that there is an international support for these these efforts um, there's a specific question um, to to you Leticia um, in terms of how you would now characterize this conflict um, we know that um, um, you know there's a very strong ethnic dimension to this crisis already um, in in Darfur, um, and wondering how how Human Rights Watch is is, is characterising this this uh, conflict now and how you see this playing out. Um, and then um, Nuha, I know you've responded to some of these questions already, um, but a question in terms of um, you know how you're managing to respond on the ground, um, how medical donations and shipments are entering the country, um, and what are some of the key medical concerns that you're seeing on the ground? So I think we'll maybe start with those uh, questions, all of which pick up on, on the comments that you've already provided. Um, and uh, maybe, yeah, turning to you, Leticia, around, I guess, how you're characterizing um, this conflict and the ethnic dimensions around it, um, and, and perhaps a little bit more in terms of what you're calling for in terms of those justice and accountability mechanisms that you described in your, your opening remarks. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for, for the very important and, and, and valid question as well. I mean, in, in, in the first report we released on West R4, we do characterize what we document in that report as amounting to war crimes. Now, these are serious violations and, and need to and should be leading to the, the sort of international response that such grave violations um, would, would require. Now, a few things, as I described in, in my opening remarks, I mean, what we document here form parts of trends which have been going on in West Darfur for several years and are only getting worse. In our report, for this reason, amongst others, we are calling for um, for the International Criminal Court to include events in West Darfur as part of their ongoing investigations. And as we know, last week at the UN Security Council, the ICC prosecutor made clear that was part of their ongoing investigations. Now, we believe that what is happening warrants is of a magnitude that deserves that sort of investigation and scrutiny and response. 
Um, as I said earlier as well, what we document in this is one attack in particular, but we do not preclude that this forms part of a much broader trend. As I underscored, we also have satellite imagery which shows that at least six other towns were burnt in this same period that we were investigating the events in Mr. A. We also documented how in the first week of the attacks in El Janina, the gathering sites, as we know, a lot of the internally displaced camps, um, Abu Zar, Krindik had already been destroyed in previous attacks. But what we saw in the first week of the violence in El Janina is again gathering sites being targeted. So we do know that this is part of a broader trend and we are continuing to investigate. Um, as I mentioned, Yale University have also put out a report which basically finds that there are many, many other towns which have been burnt in West Darfur and, and Darfur more broadly in, in the period of um, since the conflict started. So these are serious violations. And this is why um, back in May already, we had called on the Human Rights Council in Geneva. And this is also a call that many Sudanese um, groups have been echoing to establish an investigative mechanism which will document not only what's going on in Darfur, but more broadly, the abuses which have been happening in Sudan. As we know, if there is one context where the cycles of impunity are directly related to where we are today, it is Sudan. Um, unfortunately, the, the special session failed to lead to the sort of establishment of the mechanism we believe is warranted, and we are going to continue to push. And this is, again, where I mentioned the important commitment made by IGAD in their statement last week around cooperation and work with an international mechanism. Now we need to see that mechanism being established because this is the time where those sorts of investigations need to happen. The ICC has a very specific role. Also, longer term, medium term, there is a need now for ongoing investigations in, into a whole range of violations. We're talking about also in terms of humanitarian access, targeting of, of the humanitarian community as well. I mean, just to come and, and obviously I, I would like to hear from other speakers much more on this, but on the points I was making around the risk of getting caught up in the technical details. Of course, that is going to be central to some of the discussions. And, you know, it, it was excellent to hear from Clementine that there are discussions around a moratorium. But but I think what, what is critical here and what that the international community failed to do in Ethiopia is divvy up responsibilities. The bigger picture, the strategy, the inter international responsibilities that warring parties have in terms of humanitarian um, access, the the those discussions need to happen at the political high level. And that needs to be the priority of people, of, of political actors, to be continually framing what we're talking about from that point of view. The technical discussions are going to happen at the more localized level, at the more national level. But what is important is that we don't see the whole humanitarian engagement on these issues basically focus on these technical details, minutia. Um, as we've seen, and I think as, as you mentioned as well, this is something which the Sudanese authorities have an expertise in, um, in, in sort of asking for more details, how many visas, where are the obstacles, et cetera. And, and I think what is critical is those 
that the political discussions take the bigger picture into account and continue to frame the access questions from a bigger picture and, and not in terms of the, the kind of technical everyday discussions, which are also obviously going to have to happen. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Leticia. Um, Dr. Liu, I want to turn to you next, maybe to talk about the, the realities of getting medical um, supplies into Sudan um, at one, one point, and I know you've, you've answered it on text, but maybe we can hear from you. Um, but also we've had a question, and I think it's particularly important for you, um, that how do we, how we make sure that, you know, as we're talking about the international humanitarian aid needing to scale up, how can it do this in a way that empowers, you know, Sudanese civil society and informal civil society, um, resistance groups and others that are responding on the ground that were so essential um, to power sharing before the 2021 coup. So how do we make sure, I guess, first of all, a practical question about um, getting medical supplies into the country, um, but also how we make sure that um, any scale up of an international response is really empowering uh, Sudanese civil society. Over to you, Nuha. Thank you so much, um, Sorja. So uh, starting off with the first questions with the medical donations and shipments being able to enter the country, um, as I answered in the chat, um, it has been an issue from before. Um, from On behalf of SAMA, we have sent a, a container that's full of medical supplies um, that has been stuck in Port Sudan since last year, um, unfortunately. Um, we were never able to release it. It just goes into offices and, you know, a lot of complicated things happen and then it just never came out. So this has been an issue from before. And as you can imagine, the situation is much worse now. Um, on behalf of SAMA and Sudan Next Gen, we were never able to release any um, supplies that have been sent to um, Sudan in the past three months. We tried so many in so many ways, but it never worked. What we've been doing is we do reach out to um, you know personal friends and experts and healthcare providers in nearby neighboring countries to see if you know the medications needed are available, and then we move on to you know once we locate the medications we move on to transferring the money, and then the next step is trying to find a way to bring the medications um, you know and to transport it to where it's needed. As you can imagine, this takes a very long time. Unfortunately, in the past 10 days, we lost two cancer children, um, two children with cancer because the medications that have been located in one of the countries with the money transferred, but we still couldn't find a way to take it to where they, they are located. So that's all we've been doing. If there are any suggestions on how to do this in a more efficient way, please let us know if any support is needed. Um, when it, and then there's a question about the largest medical needs. Um, what, I, what I've seen so far was, again, um, the need for the cancer medications, the need to support the elderly dialysis patients. We've had a lot of them pass, um, you know, pass away um, in the borders while waiting to you know, enter a country and all that. So um, those are definitely two areas that need help. And then, of course, um, our patients with the chronic illnesses who need medications every single day and, um, you know, including diabetics and the hypertensive patients. Um, and then when it comes to the question on how we can scale up and empower um, the Sudanese civil society, um, I'm glad. I think Dr. Bakriali is here with us. Um, he's one of the 
um, leadership team in Sudan Next Gen, one of the founders as well, and, and one of the influencers, very well known since 2019. Um, he, more than I, uh, but we've all been working with um, the resistance committees on the ground um, who are still there. They're very ready to support. We've been in close contact with them. So um, what I can say is if anyone would like to connect with the teams on the ground, whether local organizations, whether resistance committees, we are 100% here ready to help and support in any way we can, whether, you know, from Sudan Next Gen, SAMA, and, and the other um, partnership um, organizations, nonprofit organizations. So anything we can do, I see a lot of, um, you know, this is definitely, this has been our goal in the past four years, you know, to empower the resistance committees. They have sacrificed their lives and um, everything for Sudan to become free. So if there's any way we can work with them and empower them and see them, achieve the goals that we've always dreamed of for Sudan, please reach out to us as well and um, let us know if we can help with making this connection and support. Thank you, Mira. Um, Hadir, I want to bring you in now around, um, I guess, two issues. One, there's a question I think um, both you and Clementine can pick up about um, that the picture that some of the participants are hearing in terms of the international response is around stuckness, um, that we seem to be stuck from a security point of view, um, from an operational point of view, from a financing point of view, um, and from a political point of view. Um, and, you know, what has been possible, I guess, from an INGO perspective working in Sudan for, for so many years, you know, what agility are you able to bring to a situation like this? Um, you know, any forms of kind of new innovations um, so that we can um, provide a meaningful response in such a difficult operating environment. So maybe you could pick that up. Um, but I also wanted to hear from you about the regional issues. Um, obviously, you have a, a you're you're the regional director for for NRC um, and. Um, you know, what are some of the priorities, especially in terms of, of keeping the borders open and allowing um, these cross um, refugees to come into neighboring countries, but allowing cross border responses um, and how the international community can play a role in supporting uh, Sudan's neighbors. So over to you, uh, Hajir. Thanks, Sasha. Now, let me start with a latter question in terms of the, the regional implications and uh, what could be done as well. I think it's it's first, it's vital that as much as possible, the assistance to the people affected by this conflict inside Sudan, that the services and the support be provided inside Sudan. Uh, because I think it's, we're looking at, I mean, let's look at, for example, Khartoum state is more than 9 million people. If these people were to get displaced into the neighboring countries, this is going to have a massive implications for the humanitarian response, not only inside Sudan, but within the wider region uh, as well. So this is it, and we have to do everything we can, and I'll come to the issue question about stuckness and how we can address that as well. That is number one. Number two is that many of the crises in many of the countries in the neighboring Sudan are already in high level of emergencies that are largely forgotten or underfunded. And therefore, any additional movement of population, we're already having more than 700,000 people moving back uh, into these countries, is going to further uh, increase the vulnerabilities of not only the people who are moving, because they're not gonna get a service in many of these areas, but also the, the host communities that are going to host. And we already seen, for example, in South Sudan, the implication of the conflict in, in, in Sudan, 
because South Sudan is reliant on food imports and everything coming uh, in many of the, the, the states inside Sudan, South Sudan are reliant on Sudan for, for the supplies as well. Remember, just a few months before this conflict started, we have had people moving from the conflict in South Sudan to go seek protection uh, and shelter inside Sudan. And now we are seeing people moving in the opposite direction and now as well. And this circular movement in and out, people have to survive because of the severity of the crisis in this region that people tend to be moving, sometimes from frying pan to the fire because of the necessity to, to survive and the lack of services that continues to, uh, to persist across uh, many, many of these areas. It is vital that borders remain open and I think many of the governments have committed to do so. And I think it's very, very important to do that. But it's also important that borders are remain open for humanitarian supplies, and that pressure needs to be put on, on, on the relevant stakeholders to ensure that that happens. In terms of stuckness, yes, I think we we have legacy issues in terms of the challenges in, in, in operating in Sudan before this conflict, and there has been a number of lessons learned in terms of how we can be able to operate. And I think the, the agility of local responders, the, the use of local staffs is one of the key assets that we have, and many of the agencies have a significant number of local staff on the ground that are able to respond. But what is also happening is that the, the issue about, for example, the collapse of the banking and financial system is something that is quite very, very new to the response inside Sudan. We're seeing innovation in terms of, for example, digital cash being explored uh, by agencies like NRC inside, uh, inside Sudan. And I think we need to be very creative in terms of the way we can be able to reach the, the people uh, that need our service, especially right now when it's the rainy season, to ensure that we protect uh, planting season. And because if people don't plant, I think a few months down the line, we may have massive disruption as well that is not directly related to the conflict, but it might have been an indirect impact of, of these conflicts as well. Thanks. Thanks, Hajir. Um, I turn to you now, Clementine, maybe to pick up this issue of, of stuckness as well and what your response to that is. Um, and perhaps also in particular, this question about um, the negotiations around humanitarian access. You say that you know the UN isn't present in, in Darfur, where we know some of the, the most serious um, conflict is occurring at the, at the moment. Um, and um, I guess this, this perennial issue about how to elevate uh, humanitarian access um, to a political issue so that we're not just dealing kind of at a technical level on it, but also make sure that it also then doesn't become, um, you know, uh, the main focus of the political engagements. And we've heard from everyone um, that um, there needs to be serious attention to, you know, stopping the war and engaging um, with the key parties to the conflict. So how to manage, um, you know, access given um, the, the, the legacy concerns about the role that access has played in, in Sudan um, and humanitarian delivery as, as always been part of, of the war effort. Um, so maybe over to you, Clementine, to, to hear a little bit more about how the UN is managing, um, given this stuckness that I think is a good word for um, uh, what we're seeing um, and these difficult negotiations around access. Well, thank you very much, um, uh, Sorcher, and thank you uh, uh, for all the questions and, and the concerns raised. Uh, let me just say that um, there is no meeting, I think, that takes place, whether bilaterally with our key donors and key stakeholders, 
um, in this conflict uh, that we don't raise the issue of number one, ceasefire, and we are pushing for a permanent ceasefire and cessation of hostilities. Um, and of course, number two, um, the lifting of all these bureaucratic impediments. So in as much as we do have teams of, of people negotiating on a number of fronts here in Sudan, um, we are also trying to make sure at the political level in each of these meetings, and uh, Martin Griffiths, the emergency relief coordinate, coordinator, has attended uh, initially the Jeddah meeting, the Jeddah platform launch, and secondly, the EGAD. And it is part of our talking points. And we have people in Addis, people in Jeddah working on this as a key issue. So it's not only being dealt with, I would say, here in Port Sudan by the teams that we have here, including myself, but we're also making sure that it is part of the political discussions as well. Uh, we are looking, of course, when you look at emergencies like, like this, you want to, of course, see what you can do in the immediate, I wouldn't say short term, but in the immediate term. And that is an immediate requirement uh, for us um, as we engage with the political actors around this as well. And uh, I am here as um, a humanitarian coordinator, but I also am here as Deputy uh, SRSG. So I also have the ability to impress upon uh, the UN parts of the UN House, parts of our, do our donors as well, the uh, need for this to remain at the forefront of some of our political discussions as well. I also feel, and I say I've been here for four, four weeks, and um, when you keep trying to do something, you try to see if there are other opportunities as well. And I think my colleague Hajir mentioned something that we are trying to, to look at um, we've tried to bring in um, the capacity we need from outside of the country um, in terms of uh, uh, additional staff, surge staff, uh, emergency response staff, whether it's UN staff or whether it's uh, um, international NGOs uh, as well. Um, and as I said, we're being drip fed visas and we can't continue um, to, to move along this path and expect to be able to scale up in the manner we need to. So we're going to look at what we can do with some of the assets we have here. And in this regard, national staff uh, are going to be key. Uh, we have national staff who have been employed in a, a whole host of, of uh, uh, activities here in Sudan who have not left the country, who come to the fore with expertise raising, raising from the medical, from management, uh, monitoring. And we're going to try and see how we can tap on these individuals at this point in time to try and help us uh, scale up. That doesn't mean that we will uh, suspend our efforts. Uh, and as I said, our request is not for uh, 100 visas. It's not for the issuance of 100 visas. It's not for permits. It's for a moratorium. And the emergency relief coordinator has asked for at least a three-month moratorium. I've asked also, if you have followed some of the discussions taking place, um, there was a meeting in Cairo where the neighboring states met, and they, and now they in their statement, were talking about a three-month uh, ceasefire. Now, of course, a three-month ceasefire is not what we would like as an outcome, but it is a start. If we can get that, that will allow us to move things um, to, to those parts of the country we're unable to. But it will not necessarily allow us to bring in the necessary ex expertise. With expertise comes resources. It won't necessarily help us to bring in um, uh, some of the core relief items that we require. And as Lou has said in her case, some of them have been stuck for over a year now. So 
we are not just sitting and pushing against the same wall. We're trying to open up. Uh, we're trying to uh, be as creative as we can, and we're trying to keep moving forward. Um, and as I said, if we can't do it through new people coming in, let's see how we can repurpose the people we have. And we're compiling lists of staff, uh, not only uh, UN, as I said, but beyond UN, sometimes embassy staff who have the expertise. Let's use them and let's try and strengthen our presence on the ground and our ability to ensure um, not only a response for the people, but also a quality response uh, in relation to the standards we've set for ourselves. So just to say that um, we are trying to harness the political uh, platforms and the political negotiations that are taking place um, in the same way. Um, the other thing is, um, I think in terms of the, the, uh, the physical access, you mentioned Darfur and our, our, our absence in Darfur. Our absence in Darfur is purely for security, uh, for security reasons. We hope uh, that we will tentatively, with this agreement for us to uh, launch these cross-border operations, we will be able to send in uh, small teams um, and that we will hopefully, um, if the conditions permit, allow uh, allow for us to scale up and to extend and expand our presence there. It's it's uh, it's most unfortunate that uh, we were not there at the most critical uh, uh, time. But nevertheless, I think from what I hear from Letitia, um, there are still uh, uh, communities in need. There are still populations that require our support, and we will do the best to try and see how we can scale up uh, in the Darfur area to try and respond to their critical and most urgent needs. Um, I don't know if I missed anything, Sosha, in terms of the questions you asked me. Allow me just to speak quickly about the regional dimension and also the, the, the financial side of things. I think that has come up as well. Um, we are, I'm, I, I've said to uh, uh, my colleagues here in the agencies to OCHA that we need to try and figure out why the response has been so poor um, and to try and not only focus on traditional, but also non-traditional donors as well. Um, we have concerns, even as we speak about Darfur. Um, I've been in this region now for four and a half years, so I know very well the challenges that the neighboring countries face in terms of the existing uh, refugee populations that they have, not to talk of this additional caseload that is newly arrived um, and which is, uh, is urgently in need of, of uh, emergency uh, uh, support. Um, just to say the average stay in asylum in the region is between eight to 10 years. So all those that cross will continue to remain in asylum countries for that period of time. But my big concern is Chad. Uh, Chad has received uh, the largest influx second to Egypt and the financial situation is dire. If we are able to uh, support Chad, it will strengthen our ability to support those in Darfur. Uh, it would be quite uh, uh, tragic for us to move uh, humanitarian items through populations that are themselves in need of humanitarian support. And so my appeal when I engage with donors is not only to lobby for Sudan, but to lobby for the neighboring countries as well, um, not only in terms of resources, but also in terms of advocacy, in terms of keeping the borders open, but more importantly, in terms of meeting uh, the needs of these governments and the partners on the ground to respond to the uh, um, emergencies that they are grappling with at this point in time. I give you back the floor, but if there are any questions I forgot, please let me know. Thank you, Clementine. Um, I must admit, I've left everyone 
run on for longer because I think there's so much to cover in this discussion and actually we could go for, for the whole afternoon. Um, people are still online and with us, so I would like to do one more round, but really to just to focus on, you know, and it's, it's a very difficult question, but what would your first priority be in terms of um, pushing for, for international engagement um, and to um, ensure that there is a, you know, as you call it, a quality scale up um, Clementine um, in this response, whether that's from a political point of view, from a human rights point of view, from a humanitarian point of view. No, I'll start with you. What's your your first uh, priority? I think my first priority would be what I mentioned earlier, acknowledging the humanitarian crisis um, that's currently going on in Sudan, um, just like that that has been happening in other countries. Um, I think that's the first thing, getting the attention and the awareness and reminding ourselves that we're all humans and this is an urgent uh, need and moving on to, you know, pressuring um, the the forces on the ground to end the war as soon as possible. Thanks. Thanks, Nuha. And, and Hadir, um, over to you. Thanks, Sasha. I think when, when this conflict broke out in, in mid-April uh, at the time when there was very high optimism in the country, many asked the question, why was this not foreseen and why was this, this not prevented? I think well, what happens is that if we get stuck in our today's challenges and our own today's reality and trying to deal with today's issues and lose focus of the potential evolution of this crisis, we risk asking ourselves the same questions down the road. So to prevent from that happening again, I think for me, the priority will be is that it is vital that we invest more today in enhancing our collective efforts towards safeguarding lives and livelihoods inside Sudan and the affected neighboring countries with a much longer term perspective. Uh, because a few weeks ago, we had to rechange our plans. I mean, we, the number of even the planning figures for displacement outside of Sudan uh, were very conservative at the beginning, but now every time the plan becomes obsolete even within a matter of weeks. So I think we need to be ambitious, um, but that requires as well uh, every other they call it included on us playing uh, the same, taking that responsibility seriously. Lots of great initiatives and efforts are currently ongoing. Important to keep those alive, but we also need to do more. Thanks, Hajir. Um, maybe to you, Leticia, you've raised a number of, of key points. I guess what would be your number one priority? Well, I think that's that's an impossible question. And, and, and we're not very good at saying just, just one, one recommendation, but I think maybe in some ways and 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 to the point Hajir has just made is you know we we believe if we think about what our theory of change is and what we need to see is a shift in the behavior of the warring parties who were previously the political actors etc and so from our point of view of course there needs to be robust measures to prevent them from being able to continue to harm civilians, to continue to obstruct humanitarian assistance and, and continue these trends. And I think it is obviously easier for, for us from where we sit to, to think maybe slightly more medium term, but it's very clear that we will continue to see these cycles of human rights and humanitarian crisis if the behavior isn't forced to change. And I think at the moment, that's why we need robust measures. And we're obviously calling for the sanctioning of individuals at the highest level. We're talking for about robust measures to prevent their access to ongoing um, 
um, armament. So there's a whole range of instruments the international community could be using and at the moment are only using half-heartedly. And I think that's where we we, we really think there needs to be a priority. Tissia and, and Clementine, um, to you, I know your, your uh, bandwidth is a little bit more difficult, but if, if you can, the last word. Okay. Um, yeah, can, I'm sorry I got thrown up, so I've just come back. Um, um, just to yeah. Sorry. Would you like yeah, me to I repeat? Hear, no, I heard. I heard the question, and just to say, I heard what everybody said, and I fully support that. Um, let me just say that, quite frankly, behind every humanitarian um, um, crisis, uh, and the only way to resolve it is for a political solution. Um, it starts with a political solution, and that is really at the heart of addressing humanitarian crisis. I know you said one, but I'm going to say a few more. Um, you uh, clearly, uh, we need the resources. Um, we will get to a point, um, even if we're able to address some of the other issues, we will not have the resources that we need to address uh, a humanitarian crisis of this scale. So the resources, the commitment um, the commitment politically, the commitment in terms of holding the parties accountable uh, is also important. Accountable now for the, 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 the challenges that their people are facing and the impact of the lack of access um, in trying to address these challenges. It is their responsibility. We as a humanitarian community, we come in to support them. Therefore, they have to do what is right and allow us to support them and access the populations and give them the support that they need. Last but not least, Access is, of course, key. Uh, without access, uh, we could do very little. We have come up with alternatives. I'm not sure how those alternatives will give us uh, the, uh, the impact and the outcome we need, uh, but we will put them in place. And I'm open, as are my colleagues on the ground, the agencies, the partners, to any ideas, any creative ideas that can help us in terms of trying to achieve uh, uh, these, uh, these outcomes. So just to say thank you very much. Um, and uh, I'm here, but I remain available and um, accessible as well. Thank you all very much. Um, a huge thank you for me. I'm not going to try and sum up. We're all already over time, but it's been a, a tremendously rich conversation. I think um, it behoves all of us uh, to keep eyes on Sudan as uh, the tagline goes, um, because we can see just this, you know, what a, you know, it's now a protracted uh, crisis of, of epic proportions that is affecting millions of people within Sudan and its border areas and beyond. Um, it requires, as um, Clementine has mentioned, real political and sustained engagement. It requires um, accountability and international pressure um, to put pressure on the warring parties to change their behavior, as Leticia mentioned. Um, we need to ensure that there is um, access within Sudan, but also international support to actually deliver meaningfully on the ground um, and to ensure that there is you know, a higher level of humanitarian engagement in, the, in this crisis to support um, you know, the national Sudanese responders that have really been the backbone of the response, but also international agencies like NRC and others that have been engaging. So um, thank you all for, for joining us. Um, 
um, do please stay engaged. There's a number of links um, that um, have been provided in the chat to the work um, that NUHA um, and others are, are doing on the ground. Um, um, this um, event has been recorded and we will be promoting it. Um, we know that people will be listening back to it. Uh, thank you all for your questions. Apologies that we couldn't um, address all of them. Um, but I know uh, many of our panelists have been engaging in the chat as well. So thank you once again to to um, to Nuha, to Leticia, to Hajir and Clementine for your time and um, really insightful perspectives today. Thank you all.